0: Okay, going to be in Exodus 2 and 3 this morning. Some good Advent reading. Uh, everyone's confused, that's okay. On Christmas Eve, 1953. Kansas farmer Frank Stober got tired of all the old twine littering the floor of his barn. And the way to get rid of twine on a farm is to sort of sweep it all up, haul it all outside, and then burn it. But that's a lot of work, and Frank was 62 years old, so he began rolling it into a ball. And at first, not even his family knew about the ball out in the barn. Uh, but in time, Frank's neighbors found out, and facing sort of the same disposal problem as Frank, they started bringing their twine to him, and he added it to his ball. Uh, Frank carefully recorded the ball's size, weighed it regularly, and kept a notebook naming every person who had given him twine. And Within three years, the ball was seven feet high and weighed two tons, Proud of his accomplishment uh, and running out of room in his barn, uh, Frank hauled the ball into town to be a part of the 1961 Cawker City Centennial Parade. It was such a popular attraction that year uh, that a year later, it was placed on a concrete slab next to US Highway 24 right there in the main part of town, and it's been there ever since. Now, I probably would have never known about this, except that when we lived in uh, North Dallas and Richardson, our annual trip up to the farm in Thorpeburg, Kansas took us right through Cocker City. The first time we went that way, we had, you know, you slow down as you get into the little towns, uh, and I think everyone else was probably asleep, uh, but I was sort of taking it all in, I'm always looking around. And out of nowhere, we passed this giant ball of twine on the side of the road. And of course, you can't pass a giant ball of twine on the side of the road without stopping to check it out. In fact, I think there's uh, federal laws about that. You have to stop. Uh, So when this thing caught my attention, we pulled over to see what it was. And to do the whole sort of tourist thing, taking pictures, reading the story, finding out all about it. all, All that stuff. And it was great. And even though we haven't been there in over 10 years, because our, our road, our path to Kansas is a different path now, uh, but I still remember it vividly, because that's not just, that's, that's just not something that you see every day, it's a giant all the time, right? And even though it doesn't have any real importance in the overall scheme of things, it left an impression. Now, right beside the ball, there's a sign that declares it to be the largest in the world. And I didn't even know there was a competition. Uh, but apparently, there was a similar ball in Minnesota that was in the running until 1979 when its creator passed away. And that town memorialized their ball of twine and never added to it which left the door open for Stober's ball of trying to retake the lead due to Cocker City's decision to allow people to continue adding to it. Based on careful local documentation, there's a lady, uh, her name's Linda something, I forget, but she just she's there all the time, writing down who adds and how much and the whole thing. But based on her documentation, the most recent estimate is that Cocker City's ball of twine now weighs over 13 tons and contains nearly 1,600 miles of twine, and still growing. I guess the most interesting thing about this is not just that it exists, but that it began with one man in the middle of nowhere, and he had a challenging problem. And that it's led to everyone from anywhere being able to be a part of it that's sort of what we're going to talk about this morning as we look at the very beginning of a group of people who went on a long, perilous journey toward the light. So follow along with me, if you will, as we read from Exodus 2. We're going to begin in verse 23, right toward the end of the chapter. During those days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. May God bless the reading of his word. So, okay. So what does what we just read have to do with Advent? Right? That's the big question. That's what we're all wondering. And it's a fair question. So before we dig into the text directly, we need to understand sort of the larger picture. And and what does that even mean? Right? Another good question. Well, Advent didn't happen out of nowhere. It wasn't a random occurrence. It was the fruition of a promise given a very long time ago to a specific man whose name was Abraham. A promise that he and his offspring would be blessed and that they would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. And if Advent was half as casual as some people seem to think Jesus would have shown up immediately to make it all happen right then. But God has a particular sense of timing. And the children of Abraham, who became known as the children of Israel after his grandson, had a long, perilous journey laid out before them. A journey that at one point led them into slavery. And that slavery became a template for how they would understand God and salvation from that time forward, including the promise of a coming Messiah who would rescue them once and for all. But it was never an easy road. It was never as enjoyable as they might have hoped. Not because God wanted their lives to be difficult, but because they consistently made all the wrong choices. Time and time again, they rejected the way of the Lord in order to follow their own ways or the ways of the world. The Lord waited patiently for them to struggle through it all before finally sending Jesus into the world. Now, all that to say, we don't come by Advent easily. Jesus didn't just drop from the sky onto a cross the children of Israel went through a very long, painful pregnancy before giving birth to the Savior. And that's only the first half of the story. The second half is all about how Jesus rose from the grave, ascended his throne at the right hand of the Father, and sent the Holy Spirit to live within us until it's time for him to return. Which means we live between the Advents. The pattern laid out in the story of Israel's slavery to Egypt is still one of the best ways for us to understand our situation, our desperate need, and our salvation. In other words, our story fits into a much larger narrative of how humanity enslaves itself and how Jesus came to set us free. This is the heart of Advent. Which means part of understanding Advent is understanding our slavery and our need. And that's why we're in the book of Exodus this morning. So let's take a shot at this. Israel's slavery in Egypt goes back to before they ever even arrived in Egypt. Uh, the story to the, to the time of Joseph and his jealous brothers. And a decision that would ultimately lead to their enslavement even though God provided in Joseph's life and then threw him into the lives of his brothers, the decisions they made would have consequences. When a famine hit the land, the brothers unknowingly turned to the one person they sold into slavery in order to save them, and he would. But within a couple of generations, the Egyptians would forget all about that and make this non-Egyptian tribe of people into their slaves. And that would end up being the situation for over 400 years. The situation got gradually worse with each generation, from increased labor to uh, the Pharaoh at one point ordering the death of all newborn Israelite sons because they were growing to, to be too many, Uh, And that's just a gruesome event, but it would be repeated during the first Advent story when Herod did the same thing in Judea. But in the midst of it all, God had a plan to rescue Israel, and that brings us back to this morning's text. So in verses 23 through 25 of chapter 2, we see the situation at its worst, and the children of Israel called out to God as a result every single one of them was born into a world of slavery they wouldn't have begun doing the the things that slaves do immediately not as infants and toddlers but there was no doubt that they would the older they got the more they could do the more they would end up doing it was a matter of if but when As they grew into their slavery, they found themselves overworked and overwhelmed and overpowered, and they were incapable of rescuing themselves or freeing themselves from the situation that they were in. They needed a savior. This is exactly the situation we find ourselves in as well. Each and every one of us was born into a world of slavery, not to Egypt, but to sin and death. We might not have begun doing the things of sin and death immediately, but there was no doubt that we would. The older we got, the more we could do, the more we would end up doing. It isn't a matter of if, but when. And as we grow, grew into our slavery, we find ourselves overworked and overwhelmed and overpowered. We are incapable of Incapable of rescuing ourselves or freeing ourselves from the situation we are in. Like Israel, we need a Savior. What is fascinating about the way these three verses portray the situation is the picture of God that starts to take shape here. We see four things that this little short passage before chapter 3 says about God God heard, God remembered. God saw and God knew. So let's spend a few moments considering each of these before we move on. Because these are the way God is described at the beginning of this story. And these are the way the children of Israel would have understood who God is. The first statement is that God heard, God was listening, God was paying attention. And we might ask, what about all those 400 years of slavery? Was God not listening then? Did God not pay attention then? We also have to wonder, though, is that even the case? Or could it be that Israel was not calling out to God during that time? Did they let their feeling of abandonment, abandonment maybe overwhelm them and just sort of give up? just resign themselves to their situation. That happens a lot in slavery situations. I can't tell you even how many people I've met in my time in ministry who take that very same approach. For whatever reason they believe God has abandoned them or left them, that God has walked away from them, maybe even that they are beyond God's reach, that God could never rescue them or would never rescue them. And I know this feeling well because I've experienced it in my own life. I've felt the astonishing emptiness when it seemed as if God walked away from me and all that was left was merely chaotic darkness. But that's not what we see in this story. In the midst of their slavery, Israel cried out to God collectively and God heard them because God was listening. God was paying attention. We also read that God remembered, and this is a direct reference to the promise God made to Abraham, that he and his family would be blessed and would be a blessing to the world. God hadn't forgotten the promise. God wasn't going to just sit by and let it all go to waste. God was going to act, to send his chosen one to rescue Israel and lead them home to the land of promise land flowing with milk and honey. The same is true for us. God hasn't forgotten any of us. The Lord still remembers the promise. Because of Advent and what Jesus has done, we have been brought into Abraham's family. Even if we don't always feel like it, we have been adopted as children of Israel and the promise, children of God. And the promise is just as much for us as it was for them. We also read that God saw them. God wasn't unfamiliar with what they were going through because God was watching it all unfold. God was watchful and waiting for just the right moment when the people would join together in crying out for rescue, for salvation and freedom. And then God would. Because even though God sees us and sees what we are going through, there is a matter of our hearts and what we long for. How enamored are we of our captivity? Do we even want to be rescued? Or are we satisfied with how things are in our lives? Because being rescued means getting up and moving leaving our current situation and heading toward a better one. And as much as many, if maybe not all of us, would nod our heads and agree that this is what we want, are we really willing to move? How many of us are really ready to follow our Savior out into the wilderness, where food and water are scarce? where we will have no other choice but to rely on Him for everything. What if God is watching us and waiting for us to be ready for that moment together? Waiting for us to get to the point in our lives where we will cry out to Him for something better than what we already have. We're so satisfied. The final thing we read here is that God knew God knew. The Hebrew word used there is yodah, and it means to know, regard, or be acquainted with. When the Israelites had finally had enough, they called out to God, the Lord began to be reacquainted with them. began to know them. This is a term of relationship that we're seeing here. It's not that God didn't see what they were going through. It's not that God couldn't hear their prayers. It's not that God forgot about them. The story here is that Israel finally reached out to the God who had been there all along. As a result, a relationship was formed. Or rather, a relationship was rekindled. And that's a good segue into what happened next. As we move into chapter 3 we find Moses shepherding out in the wilderness. And this may have been a step down from being a son of Pharaoh, but it would certainly be good practice for what was coming. As Moses was moving his flock near Mount Horeb, we are told that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a burning bush that was not consumed. This clearly caught Moses' attention. And he pulled over to check it out. I think a burning bush that wasn't being consumed would definitely be more of an attraction than a giant ball of twine. Moses was certainly curious, and as he approached it, the Lord said his name twice. Moses, Moses. Twice for emphasis, right? It's as if God wanted Moses to understand that he was Yadah, that he was known. That the Lord saw him and knew him. That there was the foundation of a relationship there. Beyond that, we see other details that need our attention, such as why did the angel of the Lord appear as a flame? What is the significance of that? Because the Lord had appeared to other people before, right, in Scripture. To Adam and Eve in the garden, although they obviously saw God in a much different way than anyone after that. Uh, but also to Abraham in the form of a man with two companions. And then to Jacob as a stranger in the night who wrestled with him until dawn. But this time was different. And just like in those other cases, uh, this has to do with the situation at hand, something different is taking place, and so God appearing is going to look different in this situation. The Lord wanted to make a certain impression on Moses, to impress on him what was about to happen, the scale of what was going on, what the Lord was asking of Moses. It wasn't going to be easy. It wasn't going to be like, uh, it it was going to be rather, rather like walking through fire. But there's also the fact that from this point forward, God is often understood in terms of fire. Now in the ancient world, fire gave light and warmth, which meant it was essential for life. And this imagery shows up over and over in Scripture. In Exodus 24, 17, God was a devouring fire on top of the mountain. In Deuteronomy 9.3, God was a consuming fire going out before Israel. In Isaiah 10.17, God was a fire that would burn away thorns and briars from among the people of Israel. This time with Moses, the flame was at the mountain of God, which means there's a whole other layer of meaning here as well. Aside from being a source of light and warmth and life, Fire was also used in Scripture to represent purifying and refining. And these are tied directly to God's holiness. Which would of course be connected to the mountain of God. And this is seen when God commanded Moses to remove his sandals saying, The place where you are standing is holy ground. There's something distinctive going on when we come across in this way and what it all means. Something that is meant to bring our attention to the holiness of who God is. How God is unique and entirely other, like nothing else anywhere else. It's so important that we wrap our heads around this concept because it's at the heart of Advent as well. And in a very similar way, In the story of Exodus, God showed up as a flame of fire and called Moses to go and secure the freedom of his people. In the story of Advent, God showed up as light in the darkness. A babe in a manger who would grow up to teach people about God's kingdom before going on to secure freedom from sin and death for anyone who wanted to be a part of that. As we draw further into Advent and closer to Christmas, we have to ask ourselves if we have truly turned aside from where we were headed in order to follow Jesus. Or if we are merely taking part in a, a sort of social ritual meant to make us feel better. Because Advent isn't really about jingle bells and dashing through the snow. Advent isn't really a matter of decorated trees and holiday wreaths on our doors. Those things are fine, but they are not what Advent is about. Advent is about light entering the astonishing emptiness and bringing order into the chaotic darkness. Advent is about all the ways we have failed to recognize the holiness of God in our lives. All the times we have refused to pull over check out what God was up to because we had somewhere more important that we wanted to be. When God has been busy showing up in our lives as fire in a way that offers light and warmth and life, in a way that would purify and refine us, we we get so caught up in trying to do all the shopping and all the other distractions associated with the season that we miss this. Advent is meant to pull our focus away from the highway of all that stuff to the burning bush where God has something to tell us and something to ask of us. We get that part of the message in verses 7-9 through 9, where the Lord heard and remembered and saw and knew Israel. When the Lord moved to rekindle a relationship with Israel to rescue them from their slavery and deliver them from their oppressors. In other words, God was aware. The Lord understood the situation, understood what it would take to make things right again. And then the Lord acted by calling on Moses to act we're paying attention, the parallel to our situation is clear. The Lord has heard us. The Lord remembers us, sees us, and knows us. The Lord has moved to rekindle a relationship with us by sending Jesus into the shadows of this world to be the light. To rescue us from our slavery and deliver us from our oppressors. In other words, God has always been aware. The Lord understood our situation as well. Understood what it took to make it right again. And then the Lord acted. And then the Lord called on us to act. Two thousand years ago, the light of the world appeared in the astonishing emptiness and chaotic darkness and began to unravel the shadows began to fill the void with light and warmth and light so that we might experience right relationship with our Maker. That's what God wanted with creation, with Adam and Eve. It's what God wanted with Israel, and it's what God wants with us. That's what Advent is all about. Jesus has come and done something completely unique Shining in the shadows as only He can. Like a flame of fire in a bush that isn't consumed. If we will just pull over and recognize the Lord's holiness, we will experience light and warmth and light and life. And then just as the Lord acted in that time by calling on Moses to act, the Lord will act in our time by calling on each of us to act. And we may find ourselves in the same place Moses found himself, wondering how he could be the one God wanted to engage for this whole thing. We may find ourselves wondering, who am I to do this? The answer to that question is the same now as it was for Moses. The same as it was in verse 12 when the Lord said but I will be with you. The statement goes well beyond Moses. Well beyond even the situation at hand when God said it. This statement is the whole point of Advent. And now as a result of Advent it's God's response to us in every situation that we go through. My life is falling apart, but I will be with you. I keep reliving bad choices that I've made in the past, but I will be with you. I can't overcome this sin in my life, I'm facing a situation I can't possibly handle on my own. But I will be with you. I'm battling an unshakable depression and loss. But I will be with you. Who am I to go and tell anyone anything? But I will be with you. See, we can experience hope and peace love and joy this season because we trust that God hears each and every one of us God remembers each and every one of us God sees each and every one of us God knows each and every one of us that in the wilderness there is a fire That in the shadows, there is a light. That the Lord will be with us because what began with one man in a manger in the middle of nowhere has led to anyone from anywhere being able to be a part of it. That in our slavery and oppression, there is one who has determined to rescue us and free us and lead us home. If we will follow Him. This is the message of Advent, and the story is far from over. Will you pray with me?